Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. Markets shrug off higher consumer prices. The economy is in the process of rebounding. Will the Federal Reserve have its own digital currency? The financial stories that shape our world. Many people think the yields are just going to keep marching up. We have more spending coming out of Congress. One of the big questions, I think, on investors' minds, inflation. Through the eyes of the most influential voices. Larry Summers, the former Treasury Secretary. Brian Moynihan of Bank of America. Wells Fargo CEO, Charlie Sharp. Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston. From Bloomberg Radio. Everything's coming up roses. We're back outside without masks. People are getting back to work. The economy is growing. So, should we be worried? This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. This week, we saw more of everything. More stimulus as both the Fed and the ECB say they'll keep buying those bonds at accelerated rates. More inflation as the U.S. CPI grew at the top of the range of expectations. It was up 5% year-over-year for the month of May, and Chinese producer prices shot up. More job openings for those looking for work, as the jolts numbers are running at record highs. And more meme stocks, as AMC and GameStop are so last month, replaced by stocks like Clover Health and Clean Energy Fuels and prison operator Geo Group. But the one thing there wasn't more of was fear, as the 10-year yield dipped back down below 1.5 percent and equities spent the week flirting with record highs, with the S&P 500 up for a third week in a row. So being a trader may have been some fun this week, but what was it for investors? Did we learn anything for the longer term? And is there a downside to all this forward momentum? For some answers, welcome now Steve Ratner. He's chairman and CEO of Willett Advisors, which invests the family and philanthropic assets of Michael Bloomberg, founder and majority owner of our parent company, and Katie Koch, global co-head of fundamental equity funds at Goldman Sachs. So welcome both to both of you, Steve and Katie. Katie, let's start with you. Uh, the headline for me this week is we had, as I say, 5% inflation year over year in the month of May. That's the highest it's been in 30 years. Uh, the real yield is at negative rates that we're, we haven't seen since 1980 when inflation was out of control, and the markets just shrugged it off. How can that be right? Yeah, um, 
very interesting inflation print. Like you said, the CPI basket clearly showing a lot of upward pressure. And to answer your question, why is the market shrugging it off? It's obviously because the Fed is telling us this is transitory and, and the market also is believing it's transitory. Uh, and that's the reason we haven't seen um, a lot of movement in the 10 year. And so this is what people are really going to have to get their heads around in the coming weeks as to whether or not um, this will unlock. Is it really a supply chain issue um, as, as an example that's driving that? So we have to spend some time thinking through that. But I would separate the, the CPI basket issue from the wage issue. And I just want to comment on that quickly. Um, I can make a case for a lot of things in that basket being transitory. We are worried about some of the inflationary pressures that we're seeing in wages. You mentioned record jobs um, available, the over 9 million, the biggest in history. From our portfolio companies, we're seeing some people have to increase wages by 40% to bring people back into the labor market. Uh, it may be possible, and this could be good in some ways, that we are at the precipice of a redistribution redistribution cycle from capital uh, to labor. And that is going to have some inflationary pressures that we're really going to need to watch. And if that is the case, that will show up in margins of companies. And that's something we have to be vigilant around. So, so taking that all together, people think it's transitory. The market may be too complacent about this. And we're very, very focused on how it's coming through on wages. So Steve, as a major investor, are, are, is there a danger we are being too complacent? And go back to the Fed for a second. We all like to focus on the Fed and what they're doing. They have control over things like interest rates, particularly the short end of the curve. They can really affect that. They can certainly affect financial conditions. They can't really determine inflation. They can only sort of predict where it's going. Do we think they have it right? Well, the Fed can not only predict inflation, they can create inflation, but that that's maybe another story. But I think what Katie said at the beginning, all of what Katie said was, uh, I think, dead on, but particularly at the beginning of her answer, she pointed out this disconnect between what many professional economists like Larry Summers, who I happen to agree with, as you know, but also a lot of CEOs and other people outside of the markets think is going on with what the markets think is going on. When you look at what's happening to inflationary expectations as measured by the markets, they remain, to use the Fed's famous phrase, the Fed's favorite phrase and famous phrase, they remain well anchored. Whether you look at the break-evens between tips and nominals, whether you look at the, uh, the forwards, whether you look at the five-year, five-year forwards, any place you look in the market, it's, it's suggesting that inflation will remain in the two and a quarter, two and a half percent range. Many of the rest of us have different views about that, but that's at least what the market thinks at the moment. As and when uh, the facts change, as Keynes famously uh, said, uh, we can change our minds and the market may change its mind. And to a comment you made a second ago, the Fed can control inflation and create it and, and stop it. But the one thing it really can't do is control the long end of the Treasury curve. And in a fight between the Fed and the markets over what happens to longer term interest rates, not the Fed funds rate, not the two year, but when you get out to 10, 20 and 30 years, I, I, I believe and I think history would suggest that the markets are more often right than the Fed is right. And that becomes a test of wills. So, Katie, you mentioned uh, inflation, particularly when it comes to wages. What does that do to you as an investment in equities? Do you have to really discern between companies, for example, with smaller margins that might get really squeezed with wage pressure? Because one of the things that can happen in inflation, whether it's wages or it's input costs, you can really hurt the margins. Yeah, absolutely. And so I think with wages, one thing, the, the main thing that we have to figure out here is that we know that wages are going up. As, we, as I said, we're seeing a lot of data on that from our portfolio companies. Um, we need to, and it's quite an interesting thing because we've actually been able to achieve through this stimulus an increase effectively in the minimum wage that we have not been able to do through policy uh, ever. And so that's in and of itself quite interesting. 
then we need to actually see with these wages, is this a one-time reset or are we actually going to have growth of, of, of upward growth on wage pressure going forward? And so that's what we have to monitor. If we have that, it is going to start to erode margins more meaningfully, and that could be negative for equity markets. Just taking one step back here, though, I think what we're seeing in equity markets now as it relates to inflation is that markets are up 13%, so very healthy return for equity markets year to date. But the inflation is playing out what's happening under the markets, obviously with value having strong leadership over growth markets. And that's directly because of inflationary pressures. Many thanks to Steve Ratner of Will Advisors and Katie Koch from Goldman Sachs Asset Management. Coming up, Jeff Bezos says he's going into space this summer. But can he make some money up there? We ask Tess Hatch of Bessemer Venture Partners. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing, member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. Space is now open, not just to astronauts, but to billionaires. Jeff Bezos announced this week that he's going to take an 11-minute trip to space on a Blue Origin rocket next month. And he's not the only one. Virgin Galactic's Richard Branson plans to take a similar trip as early as this summer. We're asking our founder, Richard Branson, to come on and really test the private astronaut experience for us. We think who better to do that? That's Virgin Galactic CEO Michael Cole Glazier. For investors, space is a growth market. Morgan Stanley estimates that the global space industry could grow to $1 trillion in 2040. Competition among the space barons started when Jeff Bezos founded Blue Origin back in 2000. My vision for Blue Origin, the long-term vision, is millions of people living and working in space. We need a space-faring civilization for a whole bunch of reasons, and that's the vision. The company operated quietly for 15 years until it started testing its new Shepard rocket. SpaceX was second into the private space race, joining in 2002. In just a few years, it launched its Falcon 1 rocket and pulled ahead of its competitors in a series of firsts. SpaceX led the first private mission to the International Space Station, filling a role left vacant after NASA retired its space shuttle fleet in 2011. Here's Morgan Stanley's Adam Jonas. SpaceX is the apex predator in the uh, space market. 
Um, some would argue they're sucking the air out of the universe right now in terms of talent and capital. While SpaceX and Blue Origin compete over NASA contracts to launch satellites and service the space station, Virgin Galactic focuses on space tourism. It celebrated its first manned spaceflight in May and is planning to conduct more test flights with the goal of taking commercial passengers to the edge of space. Again, here's Virgin Galactic CEO Michael Colglazier. We believe this is going to be a supply-constrained business for quite some time. The demand of this uh, is going to be well out in front of our ability to build and scale the fleet up for a while. And as such, it will be reasonably expensive as it goes forward. There is so much excitement and, yes, romance in space. But the question is, is it investable? Can we make money out there in space? Welcome now Tess Hatch, who is devoting her career to answering that key question. She started out as an aeronautical engineer hoping to be an astronaut, worked at SpaceX and at Boeing. But now she's become a venture capitalist. She is a partner at Bessemer Venture Partners. And we welcome her now to Wall Street Week. So give us a sense of how we might make money out there beyond just getting excited about it. Of course, when investing in any company, there's a handful of things you want to look at. You want to look at the top line revenue, how quickly and efficiently it's growing. You want to look at the competitors in the space and the quality of the team. When it comes to space companies specifically, there's additional nuances you want to factor into your consideration. Let's use three of the most common examples, launch vehicles, satellites, and space tourism. When it comes to launch vehicles, you want to look at the number of successful launches and the number of assets that rocket has launched into space. When it comes to satellites, you want to look at the number of satellites and specifically what sensors they have in space. And then space tourist companies, eventually, you want to look at people that they've launched into space. That's not reality at the moment. So an early indicator is successful test flights. And all of these things are an early proxy in space tourists' case and an actual in launch vehicle and satellites' case to revenue. Again, a, a very important thing for all companies, even space companies. Tess, right now, for many of us who aren't as initiated into this as you are, when we think about private space race, we think about three big companies, right? We think about SpaceX, we think about Blue Origin, we think about Virgin Galactic, two of which are private, actually. But as I understand it, there are other companies out there as well that may not be as well known or as big. It's amazing all that SpaceX, Blue Origin, and Virgin Galactic are doing for the space industry. They're really paving a path for hundreds there are over 400 space startups following in, in, in those three footsteps and hope to be those next three. Uh, there's about a dozen space startup companies that are going public this year via a SPAC, a special purpose acquisition company, and will be available to the public by the end of the year. It's a really large market and it's an overall $350 billion economy that we use in our everyday lives, whether it's to watch TV, listen to the radio, navigate us to our destination. And, and, and these startups are really lowering the barrier of entry to space and continuing to open space for business. So pick up on that specifically, how much of this is telecommunications, is putting satellites up? I mean, uh, you've taught me actually about something called CubeSats. I didn't know they existed. I just think about the big ones, Telstar, back to the old days, right? But we have a whole new range of satellites that some of these private companies are putting up there. Decades of Moore's Law has exponentially decreased the size and increased the power of commercial off-the-shelf electronics to allow for the invention of the CubeSat, which reversed the model that you were just sharing of massive school bus sized satellites that would take years, if not decades, and tens, if not hundreds of millions of dollars to design, build, test, and launch into geostationary orbit, 36,000 kilometers away from the world. The invention of the CubeSat flipped that model so that you can launch your camera 
onto a tissue boxed size satellite whizzing around the earth every 90 minutes. If you saw the movie Gravity, it's where Sandra Bullock and George Clooney were on our International Space Station. And these CubeSats have really allowed entrepreneurs, students, people's imagination to launch unique sensors to take photos of the earth, to communicate with the earth. And I especially am interested in novel or unique sensors that are in space on this CubeSat that help life on Earth. What sorts of profit margins can you make uh, on things like launching CubeSats? Is that a profitable business? Hey, every business, even if it's space, needs to be profitable, at least from a, a venture capital investment perspective. And uh, once you make your constellation, once you get to a carrying capacity where you have the number of assets you need in space, the margins can be, can be quite good north of 60 to 80 percent, if not more or less, depending on how often you need to replenish your satellites. So I can use a, a, a specific example. Um, Bessemer Venture Partners, a firm I'm a partner at, has invested in a company called Spire Global, the largest general purpose CubeSat constellation. We have three very specific sensors for aviation, maritime and weather monitoring and predicting. It is one of the companies that has announced its SPAC merger with NavSite and embarking down that path to go public. We have about 80 lemurs, which we call our CubeSats in space. And that's all we need. We've hit that capacity and it will dramatically increase the margins for the business now that we only need to replenish every three to five years rather than launch to get to the 80 in the first place. Tess, we think of this as a massively capital-intensive business. I mean, it was at one point only the government, and now when you have some of these big companies, there's a lot of capital involved. Is that true, even with things like CubeSat companies? It's more capital-intensive, and it takes longer than, let's say, software. Software companies, you change a line of code, you push it into the ether, and you get your result. Versus satellites or launch vehicles, you have to launch your asset into space before you start generating your product and therefore revenue. Thank you so much to Tess Hatch, partner at Bessemer Venture Partners. Coming up on Wall Street Week, contributor Jillian Tett of the Financial Times explains why being an anthropologist, or at least knowing one, could make us better investors. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. To those of us coming from the outside, Global Wall Street might just remind us of those exotic tribes from Papua New Guinea or Borneo that we read about in our undergraduate anthropology classes. But it turns out that the similarities are more than just superficial, something it takes a true anthropologist to explain. Before she became an acclaimed financial journalist and author, Jillian Ted of the Financial Times trained as an anthropologist at Cambridge. And she brings us a different way to look at many of the stories we cover every day in her new book, Anthrovision, a new way to see in business and life. And we welcome her now to give us some of the taste of the lessons this book has to teach us all. So welcome, Jillian. Congratulations on this book. It's a fascinating book because you go through quite a few stories, actually, that we know about and that you've covered through the years. And we think of a sort of Wall Street stories and apply an anthrovision, as it were, to them. We can't go through them all. I recommend somebody get the book and read it. But let's take one that's very timely right now. That's work from home. And what happened when we were forced to separate from one another and now as we re-enter. Explain what anthropology might teach us about that phenomenon. Well, one of the things anthropology argues is that culture matters. In a world of artificial intelligence, we need to use some anthropology intelligence to really look at all the things that big data can't track, which is these cultural patterns which are often contradictory. 
And lockdown has made many of us in amateur anthropologists almost by default because we've just had a big culture shock where all the things that we used to take for granted about our work lives and home lives have been turned upside down. And suddenly we've had to think about things like social boundaries, who's in our pod or our tribe. And we've had to think about the rituals that shape our lives. We've had to think about all the daily routines that we rely on. And what's fascinating is that many people have learned that being at home, you can do some things incredibly well. Um, Many people have realized actually value having that boundary between home life and work life in space and in time. Um, And they've also realized that one of the benefits of being in an office is not what people think. It's not the processes and the formal tools that we use to get work done. It's often the sensory experience of interacting with colleagues and bumping into people and having serendipitous encounters that really matters. Um, There's a process of what anthropologists call sense-making going on in offices, and many people have found that pretty hard to replicate in Zoom. So the question that's fascinating now is, as we go back to the office, or some of us do, what are we going to keep? How are we going to redefine our rituals and our social groups? And now that we have an opportunity to reset them, with much more awareness in the past, how are we going to choose to do that? And just to be clear, from your book, I learned, we're not just talking about soft science here. We're talking about making money. Some people anticipated this. You talk about some trading rooms before the pandemic. There were some people who understood that importance of that lateral vision, as it were, even by having lower computers so they can see one another. Absolutely. I mean, one of the key messages in anthropology is that if you live your life with tunnel vision, just looking at things that are directly under your nose, and you don't take time to have lateral vision to look around you, then you're losing out. And ironically, financial traders have known that for a long time, because actually there's an anthropologist who went to study Wall Street traders around the turn of the century. And notice that even though Wall Street traders technically had the ability to work from home way back in the year 2000 with a Bloomberg terminal or other tools like that, banks were building bigger and bigger trading floors. And when he asked why, he realized it was because of this issue of sense-making, awareness of others, of lateral perspective, and also something called incidental information exchange, which is really what happens when you have small teams who may have very good levels of social capital inside the team needing to bump into each other and collide and swap ideas. And the key point is this, with Zoom calls, Small teams doing specific tasks can usually replicate that quite well in cyberspace. But we all know that having that incidental information exchange, that serendipitous encounter, basically running into someone in the corridor, that's what you can't replicate with Zoom. So one of the other very interesting questions that companies are going to have to think think about culturally when they go back to the office is, what do you do if part of your workforce is at home and part of it is actually in the office? And that's going to require a lot of reflection. Jillian, just a minute we have left here. I want to come up to this week in your column on the Cornwall consensus. And I wonder whether G7, there's a little lateral vision going on. Absolutely. There's so much I'd love to say about where anthropology can shed light today. One thing that it really can make people think about is the importance of symbols and rituals. We often think they're empty and meaningless, but they present a vision of an idealized future people would like to have. And if you look at the G7 this week and look at the memos that have come out, Yes, they may not correspond to reality, but what's fascinating is the vision they give in terms of how they want the world to work is very different from 
where we were 30 years ago when you had things like the Washington Consensus come out, which is all about free market economics and globalization. The so-called Cornwall Consensus, and that's right. actually the name of a memo, right. wants much more lateral, inclusive vision that's frankly closer to anthrovision. Yeah, exactly, including things like climate change and uh, public health. Thank you so much, and congratulations once again. That's Wall Street Week contributor Jillian Ted of the Financial Times and author of this new book, you have to get it, Anthrovision. Coming up, we wrap up the week with special contributor Larry Summers of Harvard. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com disclosures slash high-yield account. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. We're going to wrap up our week as we always do with our special contributor, Larry Summers of Harvard. So, Larry, thank you so much for being with us. It was another bad week on inflation. We had numbers we hadn't seen in 30 years now. For the month of May, year over year, it was 5% up in the top line number. What do you make of it? Look, it's, it's more evidence that we've got a problem, that the risk to the economy is... Uh, overheating, that you can't have COVID get to the rearview mirror, fiscal policy be pushed to the floor in terms of the accelerator, monetary policy be pushed uh, to the floor, the consumer coming roaring back, and have it all fit together. You just can't. And it's going to lead to problems. And the sooner we recognize that, the better it'll be. You know, David, here's something I think people don't appreciate that maybe is worth highlighting for your listeners. Monetary policy isn't constant. Monetary policy is getting easier. When the interest rate stays the same and inflation rises, real interest rates fall. So monetary policy has been getting steadily easier through this year even as the economy's booming. And if you do what the analysts at most of the banks do, and it's a sensible enough thing to do, form a comprehensive index of financial conditions where you look at the stock market and you look at the dollar and you look at long-term bond yields and whatnot, then the rate at which it's getting easier and the extent to which it's unprecedentedly easier is faster, is, is even more. So, the economy's like going 90 miles an hour, and not only are we not hitting the brake, we're pushing, not, even, not only are we keeping our foot on the accelerator, 
we're actually having more expansionary monetary policy by all the standard measures than we were four months ago. And I just think that defies good sense. So, Larry, just to reinforce your point, the negative real yields are down lower than they've been since 1980 when inflation was out of control. But let me play the red team here a little bit and make the argument it's transient. That's what we keep hearing. And it really has to do with the parts of the economy that are reopening. Look, David, we have transient inflation. Annual inflation in last month, according to the core CPI, was above 10 percent. Majority of that is surely uh, transient. We've got used car prices. We've got other examples that people cite that are clearly transient. But it is an elementary fallacy to confuse the idea that we have some transient inflation with the false proposition that all the inflation is uh, transient and we have nothing to be concerned about. If you look at things that are longer lasting, labor shortages, pervasive. If you look at things like the largest component of uh, the cost of living index, housing, housing is on fire. Uh, as, as you know, as your listeners uh, know, a majority of houses are selling above uh, their asking prices. In many parts of the country, housing inflation has been close to 20 percent, the vast majority of which has not yet shown up uh, in uh, any index. And so if you look at what purchasing managers are saying, if you look at what households are expecting, all of this suggests that we're in the process of seeing a change. And the people who are big on this transient idea need to ask themselves, do they really believe that 10% growth, which we're going to have this quarter, 10% growth, which people think we're going to have next quarter, dramatic declines in unemployment or growth in labor shortage, either way, that we're going to have all that and that's going to be part of a process that drives inflation down? I don't think so. So, so, Larry, let me ask you, assuming you're right, which I do, why aren't the markets reacting? I mean, you can sort of expect the inflation, but I think we would have expected the markets to react. Unlike many of the others in this debate, I admit it when I'm surprised and what happened is not what I expected. And I think about how I have to change my thinking. And just as they didn't anticipate what happened to the inflation figures, I didn't anticipate the kind of decline in nominal yields that we've seen. So I've spent a lot of time thinking about it. Here are some aspects of it. First, uh, we have seen inflation expectations rise a bit over the last few months, even as interest rates have declined. Second, there is a sense that everybody has their eyes on the Fed. And the fact that the Fed is sticking with its super low interest, super big QE policies, even as all this is going on and surprising people, is, I think, contributing to our having uh, lower uh, interest rates than we otherwise would. Ironically, because people think that the Fed's policy is so tied to the unemployment rate, when we turn out to have bottlenecks 
that hold down hiring, then we have higher unemployment, even as we have more inflationary pressure. But people think the Fed's just about the unemployment, not about the inflationary pressure. And so they take down their views about interest rates. Finally, let's have a quick summer says here, if we can, Larry. Uh, let's do it a little bit differently. You've been a professor for many years, tenured professor. Give some letter grades about how some institutions have dealt with this pandemic. Start with the IMF. A minus, maybe an A, maybe a, an a. They've recognized the gravity of the problem. They organized the raising of uh, SDRs. They called for uh, dramatic uh, responses. The reason I say A minus is they've been a bit more aggressive about telling everybody else to spend their money than they have about putting their own balance sheet uh, on the table. But I think Kristalina Georgieva has done a great job and I wish all our international institutions were as effective as the IMF. What about the World Bank? Incomplete at best. The World Bank is committed, World Bank's leadership has been committed to a model that sees the bank as a kind of business institution that focuses on individual country lending, that focuses on uh, debt restructuring. The World Bank needs to be about world public goods. That needs to be increasingly the focus of its efforts. And what they've done in that area has been slow, incremental, and uh, grudging. I hope it will uh, move uh, over, uh, over time. Uh, frankly, if I was at the Treasury, um, we'd be having a lot of painful conversations between the major shareholder and uh, the World Bank about uh, how it can step up more quickly. Last one, the United States Senate. How has it handled the pandemic? So, so, uh, so, so uh, the fact that there is bipartisan legislation on competitiveness is something that's encouraging, although I sure wish it was more about research and less about bailing out particular U.S. Uh, uh, indus uh, industries. Uh, I'm pretty disappointed that it doesn't look like we're going to manage to do what it seems to me we obviously need to do, which is to tax affluent people more to finance a significant increase in public investment. And I'm especially worried that the only bipartisan deals on the table leave out what's probably the most important historically part of Joe Biden's $4 trillion program, which is the emphasis on uh, green. That is Larry Summers. Thank you so much. Our special contributor on Wall Street Week, of course, of Harvard University. Finally, one more thought. Which 20s are we in? Things are looking up, not for everyone, not everywhere, but for an awful lot of business and the economy and people. And the markets reflect the big bounce back. But how can we tell whether it's too much and too soon? Back in January, Barclays CEO Jess Staley told our colleague Francine Lacqua at Davos that the big surge could parallel the roaring 20s. If you go back to the, you know, to the Spanish flu, which is probably the greatest pandemic of, uh, uh, of the century, you know, what that led to when it finally got um, uh, arrested 
was the Roaring Twenties. And it's not just the recovery from a pandemic that makes these Twenties look a bit like those Twenties. Once again, we have records being set in the stock market, with the meme stocks this time defying all gravity. And once again, we have tech innovation changing our lives. Although we don't yet know whether Elon Musk and his EVs will have quite the effect that Thomas Edison did with his light bulb last time. But one big difference is that, as far as I know, in the Roaring Twenties, no one was looking to replace the U.S. dollar with some newfangled currency. Something like, say, Bitcoin that is bouncing all over the place. It's not clear when or if regulators will get their arms around this cryptocurrency rush, but we're not waiting, no, no. Despite the fact that it's unstable and so far not suitable either for exchange or for storing value, we're deciding to try putting away for our retirement. As this month, For Us All, a provider of 401ks for 400 employers, announced it would team up with Coinbase to allow participants to put 5% of their retirement savings into crypto, like Bitcoin, Ether, or Litecoin. Now, this is, to be sure, only a drop in the bucket of retirement savings. But it is worth asking ourselves whether it's a sign of the times and which times. That does it for this episode of Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. This is Bloomberg. See you next week. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.